The following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode number 39, from professional skateboarder to professional airline pilot, a behind-the-scenes interview with Flying Wild Alaska pilot John Ponce, part one. Coming up now on this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. The Stuck Mike Avcast is a listener-supported aviation podcast. To find out more information about how you can help, please visit stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash support. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. I'm your host, Len Costa, and joining me on the show today are my favorite group of aviation oddballs, Starting with our first oddball, whose AME apparently thinks he's more of a butterball, Mr. Carl Valeri. Wow. Now, wow. Gosh, butterball. Like a game you know? show. <laughs> you know, I kind of resemble that remark there, uh, Len. I really appreciate you pointing that out. But he did say, I do have to lose some weight. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told him, I said, you know, rounds of shape, I think I look good, you know. And he says, nah, you, you need to get it down. But, uh, you know, we, we talked a little about losing weight, and, and people can, you know, write in their suggestions. But I told them I'm, I'm on this, like, liquid diet. You know, it's chemically enhanced my weight. I use beer <laughs> to try to lose weight. And, and it, it really, it's working out fairly uh, poorly. And so I'm trying to, trying, I'm off any suggestions as far as trying to lose weight. But it, it's funny. Here, here's another thing. Speaking of my weight, I'm not quite there yet with the, uh, with the whole, uh, uh, Seatbelt extender, mm-hmm. although that that could be an issue. But uh, right now I'm at the point where <laughs> Jeez, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing that limit. He's there, not so. even closely. Oh no, dude, <laughs> dude, I was no. Listen, if I was on Spirit Airlines, I'd be in a seatbelt extender. Oh, you know how small those seats are. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I actually have the same name of a, as a, a famous soccer player, and you know I'd like yeah that guy there with the six pack. Like I look just like him, except mine's a keg, you know. Oh, oh. <laughs> anyway, the uh, wow, tip your waiters. He's here uh, all yes, week. I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yes, I, I will be skinnier. As a matter of fact, for sun and fun, when you see me there, I'll be ten pounds less. Wow, that's committing to something. Ten. I think I just committed. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you committed. To, you committed. Committed to getting a haircut before you went. Yeah, I, did I? Well, that's your ten pounds. Oh, no. wow. Okay, wow. okay. We need to ease up on Mr. Carl tonight. Yeah, please. Don't hurt me. <laughs> um, excellent. So, and you are joining us, I guess, from, uh, again, once again, from your brother's basement where he keeps you locked up. Yes, the basement apartment here. It's horrible. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. You know, but yes, I am here in, in uh, beautiful New Jersey, and it's actually cold. It's 32 degrees. And uh, to me, that's cold right now. But it's supposed to get down to 22. This evening. 22. Holy moly. It is winter. Winter is finally upon us. Speaking of which, this episode is, today is New Year's Day. Happy New Year's, everybody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Happy New Year. I think they're all like, yeah, because we're recording in December, so I don't have the enthusiasm. <laughs> no, we're hung over, dude. It's New Year's. <laughs> that was last night. It was, it was painful. 
Uh, moving on to our next aviation oddball, Miss Victoria Zyko. Welcome. Hello. I'm really glad you used oddball after that whole discussion on Twitter. It was interesting. Yes, it was a fun discussion. Um, I think you probably have a better hairdo than I do, uh, considering all that Mr. David Abbey had to say. But nonetheless, it was a, it was definitely fun. Len, uh, yes, I always have a better hairdo than you. Well, now for sure. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Well, based on the picture, I've just seen pictures. What I'm... Just seen pictures. Oh, sorry, you haven't introduced me. I'm not here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now for our final oddball, Mr. Rick Felty. Oh, oh yes, still here. Hello. <laughs> Glad to be here. Excited to be here. Welcome. Yeah, so we got an exciting show today. Uh, we've got a, a very cool special guest like we announced on our previous uh, episode. And uh, But before we do get into that, we have some quick announcements. Let's do the pre-flight. So, Victoria, you do have a recurring announcement, a reminder. Uh, tell us about your announcement today. Well, Women of Aviation Week is only three months away, so it is coming very, very fast. Um, my personal goal as U.S. team leader was to have one event in um, in each state during this week. So I have 25 states down and 25 to go. So all you listeners out there need to step it up and send me an email about how you can get involved in your own state. In addition, the uh, nonprofit, the Institute for Women of Aviation Worldwide, is still in need of founding members to join us. Um, the more members that uh, contribute, the more prizes and great awards we have to give out to all these event organizers across the country. So um, if you work in any community that wants to help out with uh, women of aviation, just uh, drop me a line and it, it's going to be great. Yeah, women of aviation. That is going to be great. Hopefully Carl and I can make it. Uh, we'll see how it works out. That would be fun. Or Carl. If you don't make it, you're going to put on an event in your town? I'm thinking Hello. about it. Which town is that? Well, I don't know. Miami You've town, got two Jersey, towns. Jersey, Florida. Yeah, Actually, where do I go? Um, which, state do you, which state do you need? I need yeah, help in New Jersey, possibly. <laughs> we have two really? in Florida, so let's ship you up to New Jersey and Jersey, a young sure. lady out over there. Yeah. Joyzy it is. Eh? Joyzy. Joyzy. I think Solberg would be perfect. You know, they had the big balloon fest there. Just oh, putting yeah. out there. Let me go ask. It's not a bad idea, actually. Yeah. Good yeah. thinking. Yeah. What's the date there's, again? There's so many opportunities, March 4th through 10th, 2013. Many, many ways to introduce women to aviation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm, I like it. He likes it. I think this is a great will. idea. It, it, it's an amazing event. We all walk away with smiles. It's, mm -hmm. it's an amazing week. Mm -hmm. You know, if I could find a partner, we could do one in New Jersey. I'd have to get someone to help me because obviously my flying job, I need help with it. But uh, that's a great idea. I'll not committing here in Victoria. I'm bringing non I don't know. We're it's on the record. Just, it's on, exactly. It's on the air. I know. It's, it's like the 10 pounds. I committed to that. Not, not two in one night here. <laughs> <laughs> one at a time. One, one at, at a time. time. <laughs> uh, excellent. Thanks for the announcement, Victoria, and the reminder. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, get you were, you were missing your email. What was the email oh, they could reach you at? My email is victoriaN at womenofaviationweek.org. And then you can find more info at womenofaviationweek.org. And if you go under events, go to organizing an event and you can request an organizer handout. Aha. Uh -huh. And there you go. And that's there you go. Very simple instructions. We're all navigating there right now. Do it. 
They better be. Otherwise, I know you're going to fly over to their house and you're going to kick their butts. Rawr. <laughs> now entering cruise flight. Uh, so we have, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, we gave a little teaser on our last show, a very cool guest today, a professional skateboarder turned airline pilot and co-star of the Discovery Channel's Flying Wild Alaska television show, Pilot John Ponce. Welcome to the show today, John. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So it's been quite an exciting uh, experience for you. You've you've had you've had what some people, in fact, one of our listeners called two dream careers: one as a professional skateboarder, one as a professional pilot. Um, you know, I'm sure some of the listeners have gotten some of your background through a little bit through the show. But why don't you take us, kind of walk us through? Uh, you know, you grew up actually in what I understand to be Northern California on a sheep farm. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So you didn't really have any particular interest in sticking in the family business to take it? No, not really. Uh, what, what, when did you become like interested in skateboarding? I think it was right about junior high time. Um, I, was, I was always playing sports. My mom had me in, enrolled in all of them. And, and something about the skater kids, they were the punks, the outcasts. <laughs> The guys that didn't fit in, but something about the what they were doing with the boards just caught my attention, and uh, slowly I started dropping sports off and, and getting more into skateboarding. Okay, so we were, uh, you know, you started yep. transitioning from yep. sports, got interested in skateboarding, and you know, you spent you actually spent a, a portion of your time uh, in some level professionally skateboarding. And like I said, one, one listener said that was one of his first dream careers. How did you kind of make that transition? We're going to talk about the flying as well, but how did you make that transition from taking up a new hobby to becoming, you know, uh, a professional in the skateboard industry? Well, I guess when I was a kid playing sports, my dream was always to be a professional athlete. Baseball was the number one sport that I wanted to do that in. And um, once I started getting better at high school, I, I started realizing that you can get sponsorships and getting into it, saw the money that people were making. And then I just found a, a way to make money and get sponsors. And, and it just kind of escalated from there. So and I actually read this is because, you know, I was trying to trying to learn more about just John before what we know of you from Flying Wild Alaska. And, you know, there's some information about you on the Discovery website making that transition. I guess what I read was initially you got interested in learning how to fly so that you could sort of survey the area looking for better places to skate. I mean, is that is that the reality of it? Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um, had you yeah, ever, used, go uh, ahead. Had you ever been in a small plane previously to that or was just something you just kind of were like, well, that's probably a cool idea? No, I hadn't actually. I think my mom had me go up for a helicopter ride when I was three or four. I barely remember that. And it was sure. one of those helicopters that was on MASH, you know, one of the alarm <laughs> helicopters. I think but, that's the same one Victoria took a ride in at Oshkosh. Yeah. yeah. I wish I'd have remembered more of it. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool airframe there. Um, yeah. So, so you got interested in, like I said, trying to like survey the area for better places to skate. How did you start the process of deciding, you know, I think flying is going to be cool and looking around to, to where you ended up eventually taking flight lessons and then getting involved in aviation. Take us through that sort of transition of your life. Well, that, 
see, that all stems back to what my mom ingrained in my head as a little kid was when I'd always tell her I wanted to be a pro athlete. She'd always tell me, well, you know, that's great. And all you'll, you'll make lots of money when you're doing that. But then once, once it's done, maybe in your thirties or forties, you're going to need something to fall back on to sustain you for the rest of your life. So is that plan B in the back of my head that once, once I started taking lessons and, and really feeling it and enjoying it, I realized that people can actually make money doing this and, and traveling the world was a huge bonus for me. You know, I, I went on tours and stuff all over the place and, and I saw aviation as a good career mm-hmm. that would last me till I'm 65, 70 years old. And it would also take me around the world. Okay. So, and I didn't want to work a backbreaking job for the rest of my life or sit in an office. And that just seemed to fit in the hole pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know Carl and I can relate to that uh, aspect of not really having a boss. And, uh, you know, in the flying world, you go out there, you get in the airplane, you uh, take care of the mission from point A to point B and kind of, you know, don't really have to deal with any management or anything too too stressful other than whatever the the uh, mother nature throws at you. But that's very cool. So you started taking, was your first flight lessons, was that in San Diego or was that somewhere else? It was in San Diego. Okay. Yeah. So you took flight lessons in San Diego. Um, did you have, did you at, at that point decide, uh, you know, were you just going for your private to sort of see if it was something you were interested in or had you sort of you know, pretty much committed that you were going to go all the way at that point? Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't realized that that would be a good job to have. And I was just going for my private to, to fly around with my friends and, mm-hmm. and map out the area. And uh, once I got my private, even before I got the private, I was already start. I was already thinking about continuing my education and my training to get my commercial. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess when I was researching schools and looking into it, I didn't have that thought yet. It was just for the purpose of getting from A to B and going on skate trips in the airplane and finding pools and finding ditches and whatever else. Mm-hmm. Did you do any other formal training in the way of uh, college or anything else that was related to aviation? Or is it just started with the, you know, the, the bug sort of started with the first uh, lessons in the private pilot? Yeah, I'm actually taking classes right now at, at Utah Valley University online. Okay. So, no, as far as uh, f- formal higher education, no, but I'm doing it right now. <laughs> what, are you, what are you pursuing now through Utah? Well, that's just... It's an aviation degree. I, I figure all my ratings are going to knock out a bunch of units, save mm-hmm. me some money. So, mm-hmm. And it doesn't really matter what you get a college degree in. It's just yeah. his paper. So they Sure. Are. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So you, you did the private. You got excited about it. You decided to start taking into a career. Now, you know, before you even got to the opportunity to fly for error up in Alaska, as most pilots do before they make their transition, there's there's a time period where they either have some other flying related job or flight instruct to kind of build that time, that experience to get enough, uh, you know, enough flight time to move on to, uh, you know, like an airline job. What did you do? What was, what was your transition period for that, that building of flight time? Uh, most of it was flight instruction. I think I racked up about 500 hours flight instruction. And then I went out to Arizona to, I got hired 
to fly Grand Canyon tours, but that was right about the time, 2009, the recession. And I we went to the ground school and everything. And then uh, they told me to take a hike because they couldn't, mm-hmm. there, was, there was nothing, there was no business. So about three months late. Yeah, go for it. Well, um, I've been thinking about getting my CFI. Actually, it's been a goal of mine for a while now. So I'm kind of curious what your favorite and least favorite thing about instructing was. The least favorite thing was not being able to fly. But my favorite thing was um, watching somebody progress and seeing the progression. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, yeah. So, it, yeah, the least favorite thing is, is only selfish, but I don't know. That's just the way it is. Can, can I ask about the tra- – just just jumping in here, just about that transition between um, skateboarding career and, and aviation – so, you know, you're getting your private and eventually, obviously, you, you move, you, you got other ratings as well, and you were going more in that direction. How did that overlap with, uh, you know, the other career, the skateboarding career? And, you know, where, how much did it overlap? Did you just did you walk away from skateboarding or, or were, you, were you still performing that while, while pursuing the aviation thing? I guess when I moved up to Alaska, that was pretty much, that was it. Okay. I, uh, I went into the the offices in Santa Cruz and I had my things packed and I, and I, I actually got a tattoo on my leg <laughs> sealing the deal for life. So I can call the company anytime, get stuff, get products or whatever. But it was pretty much, all right guys, thanks a lot. But um, yeah, I guess I won't be available for tours or magazines or anything. I'm walking away from the whole deal. Wow. But, so it was the Alaska move that, that was the, the line in the sand on that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, other than that, when I was flight instructing, I was still doing I mean, both. I'd take, take two weeks off and, and go on tour down to South America or something like that. Cool. That's a great fit. I mean, because you can. I mean, except for, you know, keeping students, you know, make, maintaining your student, you know, ranks. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah. But you always got other instructors that you can thrill them with. Sure, so. sure. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. Sorry, Len. Back to you. Okay. Back to me. So um, I'm actually since uh, Rick actually sort of talked about the Alaska transition, um, you had, you had flown, you did flight instructor about 500 hours with the students. What was, what was the deciding point that, I mean, you, we talked about how you're interested in pursuing it professionally. Where did you come up with the idea or the decision or the opportunity to get up, you know, to move up to Alaska and start working for ERA? How did that whole pan out for you? Um, well, I had wanted to come to Alaska for the, uh, 10 years prior. I, I came up here to skate in the state fair and fell in love with the state. It kind of reminded me of home, mm-hmm. but a little bit smaller and, and more free so to where you could do what you wanted to do. And just in all the books and stuff, you know, when you're studying for a CFI, you, you pretty much engulf yourself in every piece of literature you can and, and you're studying and you're reading as much as possible. And, a lot of stories came up about Alaska and I just researched a lot about it and it seemed to match with my style, my personality as far as um, the type of flying, the style of flying that's, that goes on up here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's what I call like the, uh, the pilot's playground up there pretty much. Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's, it's definitely a free for all. And I don't mean that in res- you know, respect to a lack of, safety and airmanship but a free-for-all in that there's just so much opportunity you talk about the extensive uh, uh, 
different kinds of bush flying, uh, gravel bars and uh, glaciers and ski flying and wheel flying. You know, it's just all kinds of opportunities that you don't necessarily get to see down in the lower 48. Now, so you spent this time flight instructing. So you spent, you know, what I think you told me off the air roughly about your first 800 hours flying down in the lower 48. Tell us about the transition. What challenges did you have adapting to Alaska? Because not only is, you know, the environment different and, and clearly from Southern California to Alaska, the winters are a heck of a lot different. So there's that aspect of it. But there's also a few... Um, nuances, if you will, about operating in Alaska that are specifically only to that state. Tell us about some of those challenges and in, in the, in the changeover, the adaptation. I think the biggest challenge was it, it was becoming, it was a steep learning curve because when you're coming from the flight instructor role in Southern California where you're operating out of class Delta airspace, which has two class Bravo airspaces over that, you're used to a different format i guess and then when you get up into the bush um you know i i flew as a co-pilot for five months and that's what our company does to to train people up and get them up to speed on on the way the operations up here work but the hardest part i think was removing myself from the flight instructor the the role of the boss to becoming the role of the student again mm -hmm. and and learning what real winter flying is like. I mean, the, the only IFR stuff I'd ever seen was um, a marine layer, which is typically really good visibility underneath. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first flight, it was, uh, we called for a special, the captain called for a special. It was one mile and a thousand feet over or something. And it was just white everywhere. And the, the light up here is real flat in the winter, especially when you have an overcast. And, and it's the visibility is totally obscured because everything is just white. And so we call for a special and the guy takes off. And, and it, I swear to God, it looked like we we're in the soup. But we flew VFR all the way to our destination for 45 minutes. And, uh, and you know, every time I look down, you could see a tree and a twig go by. But... It's that wasn't the type of VFR flying that right. I was used to. Right, that's VFR, but not <laughs> anything like you'd ever done before. Right, and he's pointing things out like there's that river, there's that river, there's that hill, that there's a cabin over there, and he's and I'm just I'm searching for it. I can't find. It. I'm looking at my map, looking at the ground, and it was nuts. That was a hard part. From what I understand, that's uh, that's the term I was told is is what they refer to as Alaskan VFR flying. Because <laughs> um, yeah. I, I was telling you earlier, you know, I had an opportunity. I flew up there for two weeks in August and another two weeks in February. So I got a little bit of both sides of it. And, uh, you know, in talking about, I'm actually going to share just a couple of fun facts that I found doing some research today. But in talking about those challenges, like I said, the adaptation from the lower 48 to Alaska, there was three particular things that I found that, uh, you know, one of them I had mentioned previously on the show during my opportunity to fly in the bush, but some other two things that, um, that were really actually pretty cool that I didn't know. The first one, uh, one of the things that Alaska, how Alaska differs from the lower 48 is there's an Alaska statute. It's uh, 
I know you're all going to remember that, but it has to do with emergency rations and equipment. And and the state of Alaska specifically requires that an airman may not make a flight inside the state with an aircraft unless emergency equipment is carried as follows. There's two conditions. One is that the minimum equipment during summer months is, listen to this, food for each occupant for one week one axe or hatchet, one first aid kit, an assortment of fishing tackles such as hooks, flies, and sinkers, one knife, fire starter, mosquito head net for each occupant of the aircraft, two signaling devices in color, uh, such as colored smoke bombs, pistol shells, etc., cetera, uh, sealed in metal containers. This is, you know, so the state of Alaska goes on to say, you know, if you can operate in our state, here's, and, and I, you know what, I, I say this is with, uh, with, great respect that they, they, you know, they're encouraging and mandating that you have these items. So in the winter, it goes above and beyond saying, in addition to those items, if you're operating an aircraft in the state of Alaska, also uh, you must have between October 15th and April 1st, one pair of snowshoes, one sleeping bag, one wool blanket for each occupant over, uh, over the age of four. So that was one of the first things that I had learned my experience up there. The other two items that um, were actually pretty cool were the second one was um, another statute, 9.65.211. I won't go into any more than that, but liability of pilots and owners. I don't know if you heard about this, John, um, but as an owner or, or operator of an aircraft or watercraft, you are not liable for the civil damages of a person being transported in that aircraft or watercraft as long as it's not being used for commercial purposes, which is, you know, kind of like another thing. I don't think I've seen any other state in the lower 40. I don't know if Carl or the rest of my co-hosts are aware of, you know, where a pilot is essentially um, released of, you know, civil damages if there was an accident. Has anybody heard of such a thing before? Yeah, that's, uh, no, that's awesome. Gosh. Yeah, it is cool. <laughs> no. Yeah, so and like you know, Alaska's got some interesting things, right? And then the last one, FAR ninety one point three twenty three. You guys have to sort of look this one up because there's, there's a lot into it. But it essentially, under certain conditions, allows the increased maximum certificated weights for certain airplanes operated in Alaska. Essentially, meaning if it meets these certain conditions of the regulation, FAR ninety one point three twenty three, that you can operate that aircraft over max gross weight if it fits within these categories. So Alaska, in of itself, not just being the wild, wild, you know, flying frontier, has some additional sort of, uh, you know, safety requirements. Some things that. Um, don't you know that that release you from some of these uh, civil civil damages and then some other strange things like I said you can operate an aircraft over max gross weight something I never would have would have thought uh, would be would be I guess allowed but hmm. you know it, it, what can I say Alaska's uh, like I said it's the wild wild flying frontier um, wow so you moved up there. And you started flying. Uh, this was with ERA because at one point there was actually three organizations that merged to become eventually ERA. When you got up there, was were you with uh, Hagland or the other company or ERA, or were, you know had the merger already taken place? No, I, I started with Hagland. And uh, real quick before you go on, can I get those statutes from you? Those, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I want to look that up. <laughs> uh, sure. The uh, it's uh, two point three five point one one zero 
Uh-huh. 9.65.211A. Those are the Alaska statutes. And then FAR 91.323. Cool. Yeah. You know, when we're at work for two weeks, it's those kinds of things are what we uh, we always bring up in the pilot lounge or at home or something <laughs> just to start up conversation. Uh, you know, Icebreakers. Yeah. Or just, well, we have to live with each other. And so it, it yeah. just brings up good debates and there's all these conflicting personalities up there. So it's, mm-hmm. it gets pretty heated, especially when whiskey's involved. <laughs> that will happen. Um, what, what, but, so can yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. Sorry to go ahead. When but you went, well, you were asking about starting in Alaska. Where where was that in Alaska? Like, where did you actually, you know, what was home base as you started your life there? So the what we do is we we go two weeks on and then two weeks off. Mm-hmm. So my first domicile was Antioch, mm-hmm. which is on the Kuskokwim River in in the west in western alaska mm-hmm. it's uh it's an athabascan village hmm. and uh okay and then and then you you were the and then you've been in various places since i mean we can we can at some point as we as, as it evolves but all sort of the same kind of locations uh, yeah r- r- yeah pretty rural. much i mean mm-hmm. the, the only place that that isn't rural that we operate out of is uh well anchorage and fairbanks so right, right. has to be uh, Right, and we're and just so we all know, where are you talking to us uh, to to us from tonight? Uh, right now, I'm I'm looking at Russia from my house, and I'm in Wasilla. <laughs> wow, excellent, excellent reference. <laughs> nice. I'm laughing because I was reading about that earlier in some other interviews. Very cool. Yeah. One specifically, I think that Ariel had had with one news agency, oh, yeah. and it was just it was too funny the way she she she. She had something to say. Calling her out of it. And where, do you, and where yeah. do you fly out of now? I know you may not live where you, where you, when you're on. What's your home base now? I fly out of Barrow now. Barrow, right? Cool. But is that basically? Just, I, we're jumping ahead, but that's where the series left off, where we saw you last on TV. Is where you are now? No. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Cool. Sorry, Len. Back to you. Back to me. I keep where? Interrupting. Uh, where was I anyway? What was I asking? Well, we were just starting uh, back into Alaska. So where he started it with the is Hagland or the other company? Oh, that's right. Yeah, you start. So you started. Uh, you know, you started at Hagland, um, and then that was what year was that, John? What year was that? I was March '09, and and yeah, I'm still flying for Hagland. There's four certificates that are operating under Air Alaska. Okay, so they haven't gone to one one SOC of any sort. No. Okay. Um, well, that's interesting actually, cause we're, uh, you know, we've gone through a couple of mergers ourselves, Carl and I, and we're, we're all on one, uh, operating care, uh, excuse me. Yeah. Operating certificate. So if you're on, so if you've, you've been with the, the Hagelin side of the kit, the operating certificate, then what aircraft have you flown all the way up to the point you're now in the caravan, as I understand, is that correct? Yeah. So I, I started out in the right seat of the caravan, went to the 207 for two winters, that's that's their standard um, minimum of time before they'll upgrade you into IFR airplanes. But two winters in the in the two hundred seven, and mm-hmm. then this will be my second winter in the caravan now. Okay, and so you started in two thousand and nine. How long was it before all of a sudden you were thrust into the middle of you know a reality television show on Discovery? You know, it was only. Four months that I was working for the company before I, I ended up in Unicleat, and this is when I was a co-pilot. 
I ended up there on a charter and Ariel happened to be there with the camera crew. And when we landed, they were filming the pilot episode, just the, the this is, there was two teasers and they were filming the, the first teaser. Mm-hmm. So I was only there for four months before I ran into them. Now wow. that, co- that must've come with some interesting challenges in and of itself. First one I was curious about is the, what sort of challenges trying to do, I mean, cause you're, you're new here. So we, this part I actually didn't know until you just told me a moment ago, but you've been there only for about four months or so. And you're just learning as, uh, you know, a first officer, not only this particular aircraft, you're flying right seat in the caravan, you're also learning Alaska. And now all of a sudden you're required to perform a job you've just, you know, you've just started at. You're just really learning and feeling comfortable in the aircraft, in flying in this uh, unique environment. And now all of a sudden you've got to perform your job with essentially under the microscope with a with a flight or excuse me a um, you know a film crew in your face virtually 24/7 tell us about the challenges that that was like having the film crew always around um you know whether it's in the aircraft maybe even getting sorry for the cuckoo clock apparently it's time for that to go off but uh, <laughs> the, the, and i'm sure it'll do it a few more times but yeah you know i'm curious about that was one of my first thoughts is gosh you know i've got this job that i'm trying to do here and not from a standpoint like it's obnoxious, but, you know, an aircraft is not, it's not an office building. It's not a big environment to have people standing over your shoulder. So I'm really curious how that, you know, what the challenges were in having a film crew around. Well, I didn't, I didn't have to film when I was co-pilot. And um, I think it was, it wasn't until the next February until they filmed the second teaser. And then I was a 207 driver in Unicleet by that time. Ah. So, um, I had been in Uniclip for three months before the cameras showed up, and it was it wasn't as hard as one might think for me because of my past experience That's with all true. the cameras. I hadn't thought about that, yeah. But for some of the some of the people, and there was a lot of pilots that that were anti, and they were they were there was no way the cameras were going to get anywhere near them in the airplane. But yeah, I don't know. I I just saw it as free money so what the hell did um, you the, did, did people have a choice in that way from the company's oh point of yeah view? okay for sure yeah cool. yeah everybody had a choice um i just saw it as extra cash and sure the, i think the biggest thing all of us were scared of was the faa yeah and and the way the hollywood paints a picture hmm. that they could construe it as as something different than really happened and I'm glad you actually made that point because um, Jim himself said in an interview that he had essentially the final uh, authority in the, in part of the contract for setting up for the show. He said, "My, you know, I've got the final authority on deciding how uh, the production pans out in the way that exactly what you said, a scenario or a situation isn't portrayed in a way that when somebody watches it on television and... Not that it's done intentionally, but when you cut scenes out of a video and you do production and you make it, you know, worthy for a screen or television, things get left out. And when things get left out, the FAA sits down, they're watching and they're thinking, why'd they do this? Why'd they do that? Did they not do this? Is it, you know, was that against uh, regulation? So it was interesting to see, and and I applaud actually, Jim, for doing this putting that in the contract saying, I'm going to have that final authority to make sure that everybody is represented properly. And that was one thing, I don't know if it saved your butts, 
uh, you know, operating on the line from an FAA perspective, but, you know, he was looking out for your best interest there. And that was, uh, that was something I could appreciate from his perspective, looking out for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. There was, uh, when, when you, when we would get the, the rough cuts, we would all sit down and watch and take notes because the voiceovers, I mean, they're, they're making a TV show, a dramatic sure. television show that needs to sell to the general public. And so the, what they think might be dramatic and might make it look cool is, you know, we're throwing red flags all over the place. And so, and a lot of times it was just a different shot or a, a mm-hmm. voiceover that needed to be said or something to, to not make the feds want to come up with their ticket books and shut us down. Right. So that's cool. You, you, you got a bit of a review that allowed them to keep you safe in that way. Right. Right. That's cool. And, uh, and of course, I, I, I have to say that, you know, especially when, even when the cameras aren't on, we're still, we're not operating. We're not taking these uh, FARs like what you were talking about earlier and go, oh, well, I can throw an extra car in the back of the caravan, yeah, right. take off from the short strip. You know, it, we're still, we have passengers' lives in our hands. And we're right. Still, so uh, I, I have... Um, some TV, I have probably more TV experience than I have flying experience uh, is my sort of story because I'm, I'm the sort of lowest time pilot here. But um, so, so as a show, fascinating show, I love the flying part of it, but also get what you said and agree that, you know, part of their goal was to was to keep it generally dramatic enough for people who aren't really, you know, geeked out on flying to, to find some enjoyment too. And it, and it got to show off Alaska and all that. Um, but from, a, from, from your point of view, as... You know, I have lots of production questions. So, for instance, there's there's the little cameras that they're using in the cockpit to cross shoot everything. Um, those have to be fired up at some point prior to you doing what you do. You know, and so a certain flight is going to be filmed. Is that picked based on a story they want to tell, or do they just film lots of flights based on pilots <clears throat> who had said yes? Yeah, they would. They would go on most of the legs throughout the day if there was room. If we knew that we didn't have nine passengers somewhere, then they would pretty much go with us. And I mean, there were times and they wanted to fabricate stories. Yeah. And there was other times that we knew something would happen so that we would tell them, Hey, you might want to come on this flight. This would be a good one to come on. And cause I got a cross, I got a heavy crosswind and low visibility, but I think it'll be okay, but it could be dramatic. That kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, so, and, and so one person, how many, how many people would come? As many as there was room for, like a couple sometimes, or just. Well, if there was a big ground story in a village or somewhere oh, yeah. else, then we'd have a producer, maybe a, um, a camera cameraman, right. and a sound guy. But right. for the most part, it was just a producer holding a camera on top of the two cameras on board, and then also the GoPros all over the airplane. Right, and those all had to be fired up. I mean, it's a bit of a pre, you know. A pre-flight, I imagine that's a bit of a hassle. Yeah, yeah, and the the folks who were doing it, the camera people, the producers, they we had them trained, and they they were the same people all three seasons. And so mm-hmm. when we would get to a village and unload the plane, they were out switching the batteries and and switching the cards and the GoPros and and making sure all the cameras were good so that it wouldn't delay our flights and it wouldn't keep us waiting on the ground. I mean, it's right. it's not so much of a big deal when it's 60, 70 degrees outside, but when it's 30 below and blowing 30, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sitting around waiting for your camera to work. Right. <laughs> We're out. Right. And, you know, so, and the other, the other thing I kept wondering about as I watched the thing unfold is um, air to air. Um, how 
often were was there another plane shooting your plane or was that done sort of you know in bulk and then just cut in you know what i mean like yeah. say you're flying from a specific point barrow to wherever and on that trip was somebody along with you or or did they shoot your plane you know a bunch before and they just cut it in yeah for, for a lot of those air to air shots it was it was only a couple times that that they would do that in uh right most of the time it was out of Uniclete when right. when they would have because that's where they base the production. And so when they would have a charter with all these different airframes, they would take an hour when when the airplanes were down for kept, an hour. And catch them all. Yeah, and, and then they Jim would go up in the one eighty and they'd do some modifications and stuff and, and he'd just go up and fly around and they'd all fly around and they'd shoot all that stuff. So most yeah. of it was just all bulk footage. Right. And then I've just one more thing on production and then we could jump back to something else. But I think this is, it's fascinating when you're watching the show. Um, so if, in the cases where you went to a village and then you departed the village, um, were there, were there a lot of times where you would leave the producer on the ground to get a shot of you leaving and then come back and get them? Oh yeah. 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 Look like it looked like there would have to be that. Cause you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. What's the, yeah. what's the little, the, the little, what's the Island that's near Russia? The, the little, diamond. yeah, little diamond. Some of the, those stories that, you know, that looked, I don't know if that's really as challenging as they made it out to be, but it looked pretty challenging and also isolated. And, you know, here's the plane leaving and someone shooting that, you know, and you go, okay, somebody, somebody hung around. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah. That's a, the guys that, that they showed going into Diomede are older pilots that have been flying in Alaska for the last 20 years. Yeah, Doug, so, Doug uh, was one of them, I think. Yeah, Doug Stewart. He's yeah. Uh, yeah, he's one of our, our veterans. Yeah. When you have questions, you go to Doug. Yeah, he and seems pretty cool. If he's not going into a, a village or a runway, there's no reason anybody should go into that place. <laughs> right, got it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll, that's that's my that's my round of production questions for the moment. But I could probably go on all day. Victoria has one. Yes, I do. Um, what's the most embarrassing thing that was potentially caught on camera while you were flying? Oh man! Did you pick your nose or anything, forgetting they were there? Or well, I did that because I would do stuff like that just because I knew that the the editors of post <laughs> were so bored and it was such a monotonous job that they needed some stuff to, to laugh at. So I'd pick my nose or talk shit to them or do whatever, but nice. uh, embarrassing. I think there was one time when, when I was, you'd have to give, they would call them OTFs little interviews and the producer would ask you a question and try to get you talking so that you're not just sitting there staring out the window. Um, well, he asked me this question and I clicked on the mic onto the VHF and that's a, that's a radio that everybody in every village has in their homes. That's a form of communication like the telephone is. So I clicked on the mic and I'm sitting there rambling off about something about my personal life. <laughs> and I click off the mic cause I realized I had it held and I just went on about a three or four minute rant about this and. And I hear all these other pilots come on the radio making fun of me about it. And that was, wow. I felt like an ostrich with my head in the sand. <laughs> wow. That's embarrassing. <laughs> uh, John, question kind of referencing what Rick had to say, but you know, when you're leaving one of these production personnel on the ground to capture a shot, you're just departed. Now you got to come back and pick them up. 
I mean, the company is running, you know, it's running an airline, it's running an operation. You've got cargo, you've got personnel, you've got schedules, assuming schedules. I mean, I mean, how are you accounting? How did they necessarily account for some of those delays and some of those extra things for the production value of it? I mean, was, was Discovery compensating them for some of those losses? You know, I don't know what Jim had worked out with the network as far as that's concerned. But um, the only thing I cared about was if I had permission to do it or not. Right. Uh, and before the flight, if, if they wanted to do that, they would ask me and, and I'd go up to Jim and say, hey, if they want to do a takeoff and landing, uh, they want to film it. Are you cool with that? And if he gave me the okay, then that's all I cared about. Sure. Well, that makes sense. So, yeah. And when you mentioned a, a little bit ago about having the option of being included in the show or deciding you didn't want to be included in the show and you said it was extra cash, so am I to understand that you guys actually got some financial incentive for the participation as well? Well, yeah, there's there was a little bit of money. I mean, it's not we're, none of us are rich by any means. Sure, but, but I, I guess I wasn't aware that there, you know, they sort of had some of those incentives. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like any other reality show i guess the talent's gonna get a little bit of money for it mm -hmm. i would like it if we were paid like jersey shore cast but <laughs> it's all right um almost almost a close second and i'm not knocking the show but just from jersey shore to alaska i mean there's some there's definitely some some close differences uh <laughs> carl can relate to that with his cousins there hey how you doing Hey, I'm doing. Yeah, I'm from Jersey. You're from Jersey. Yeah, I'm uh, from Boston. I'm. I come from up north. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, um, so what were some of the? You know, we talked about the embarrassing things and working with the film crew. What was maybe one of the more frustrating uh, moments? Operate. You know, what was frustrating to you having the film crew with you? At some, you know, during so much of your workday. Um, the the cameras. I think it, it kind of came to a head towards the end of season three when the cameras were uh, in the faces in the terminal. You know, they they got yeah. this big camera on their shoulder, and I'm trying to walk my passengers out, and, and the cameras are right there in everybody's face. And I, I don't know. I people live in Alaska because they want to be secluded. They don't want to be in the limelight. I mean, that's part of the reason I moved up too, is to to become anonymous again. And <laughs> I know it's kind of bit me in the ass, but um, I think that was that was the hard part towards the end was just the cameras being there in in the faces and going up to my passengers and and asking them, "Hey, what'd you think about that?" You know, mm -hmm. the, the the show, you know, as we said, the show created drama out of out of small moments that you know, if you're a pilot, you maybe saw through a little bit, but th that's cool. Um, was there something in the show that the, that was really right on? you know, real close to the edge stuff where you, where, you know, you were involved, you know, where what you were doing was, you know, out there, you know, you know, just in terms of challenging for flying and, and really that, that what we saw on the show represented what really happened. Was there an event you can remember that was like, well, son of a gun. I'm glad they caught that one. Cause that was a pain. Um, I think, I don't know if you guys remember seeing that bird strike. Yeah. That was pretty epic. <laughs> I mean that's a was that that was know. you was that you and no that that, that was, wasn't even me that, that was, was somebody else oh, what's his uh, okay I was trying to remember the name but yeah yeah they caught that and that was real and that was the deal yeah yeah uh, there was a lot of real stuff um, 
I don't know. I mean, or without without being without my memory being yeah, that's triggered, cool. it's hard. That's cool, Carl. I think yeah, I tell you, did, yeah, I was going to say that the one thing I guess gets kind of real. I I know I, I fly a lot on the Mexican borders. You know, making the wrong turn and boom, you're in, in the wrong airspace. I, I guess you get to see uh, Russia quite a bit. And some of those, I think some of those places you fly, what's that? There's a fishing village there on a big island. I think it's St. Saint something. Um, is it St. Lawrence? Is that right? Yeah, St. Lawrence. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's no, the one. we don't get to see Russia all that much. <laughs> really? Not from that? No. You know, so you don't have any, you don't get to go out to the, out that far west or anything like that? To those islands and all? No, the far, I, the farthest west you can get, you still can't see it. it oh, from the air? No? No. Uh, I didn't realize that. Oh wow! You got to be pretty high. You got to be up in in Carl. You're in lens uh, altitudes to be able to see any land like that. Yeah, I guess some of the cool sites you'd see is like uh, that. You get to see the Northern Lights up there. I know that's pretty cool from Canada. I'd assume you see those up there too. Yeah, that's pretty awesome when when we're coming home at night. I mean, well, I guess all right now it's night all the time. But when you get in the Northern Lights and you're coming in for an approach, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it kind of. When I first saw it, I was a little bit scared. I thought there was something wrong. You know, I was like, "Uh oh, here comes the, the world's coming to an end." That type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, they um, there's some awesome sites up there. Do you ever get to go up to uh to some of those preserves up there? You know, like where is it uh, in the Bering Straits and all that? Do you ever do any flying over there? Do they ever go out and do any type of uh, looking at whales or any type of wildlife or those type of things? I mean, the whole state's almost a, a wildlife preserve. Right. With every season, you're getting different animals migrating here and there. Yeah, because there's uh, – I know I see – I used to do some work with NOAA counting manatees down in Florida, and I know those guys uh, sometimes contract out to to airlines to do some of the counting. I don't know. I guess you haven't done much of that stuff as far as counting like whales or counting other type of birds and that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, we do that. We do that kind of stuff all the time. Actually, I did some herring surveys down in Unicleet. Um, sometimes we'll we'll go do polar bear surveys. Right, right. Jim does a lot of a lot of survey work down in the Norton Sound, and uh, summertime we'll get charters for for moose surveys, caribou surveys. Uh, I got hired by Sarah Palin's film crew when I was flying out of Kavik to go and find herds of caribou in in Anwar. And oh. so I got to do some killer mountain flying for two hours. Wow. Awesome. On their dime. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of good stuff to do. So you're ultimately yeah. responsible for her shooting that, that up, <laughs> the one that yeah. she shot. Cause you found it for her. Yeah. That, that caribou, uh, oh, sorry, Al caribou. Yeah. Yeah. That caribou, um, the guide who brought, I brought her to the spike camp and then he brought all of them in his little cub one by one to the little river strip and then him and I spent the night went and found the caribou and brought them to the caribou. Wow. So wow. that was pretty fun. Brush with greatness. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. Just a little, yeah, it's cool. It's it's cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Plus plus a cool just a great bit of flying probably. Fun amazing flying. Yeah. Speaking of flying up there, I mean you Dude, you, you're flying around in this wilderness. You know, I get nervous going, going over like certain parts of the water around Florida and to some of these islands. I mean, you're you're single engine up there. And uh, does that ever get you worried? You, you know, thinking about it, you, you're up I there think, single engine. I think the more time that I get and the uh, more experience I'm getting and knowing that there's twin engines coming up pretty soon, I'm starting to get 
maybe I'm, I'm getting a little older too. I don't know what it is. House and a mortgage, girlfriend and a dog. I'm starting <laughs> to want another engine. <laughs> Very good. But now that, but the thing is though, like uh, you can't, now can you fly IFR with just one engine up there? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. With passengers. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. The, uh, cause I thought there were certain regs, I guess, in certain other, uh, operations where you can't fly IFR. With, well, we're uh, is, part 135. Okay. All right. Yeah. So there's a, um, but yeah, I know, I know that some of the 135s I was flying with, they couldn't, they wouldn't allow you to fly the single engine. I have, or you had to take the twin right. with you. And, I had uh, that same experience in Virginia. You couldn't, yeah, you couldn't fly IF, uh, VF, excuse me, IFR in the single engine. I remember that. You no, know, I, I didn't pull out the regs to look it up, but I thought maybe that's just an exception flying single engine up there. But I tell you what, I've, I've only, I've lost two engines. And the, uh, the one where I was flying single engine was, was probably the most dramatic one. And that's uh, that, it's kind of scary. And that's one of the things when I when I see you guys flying, I'm like, oh my gosh! I mean, it's so beautiful and everything. But I'm like, gosh, there's just one fan up front. <laughs> I'm like yeah. being a little bit nervous. But uh, you know, getting back to just a little something because I, you know, I'm really interested in in aviation careers, and it's something that I kind of I, I spend a lot of time helping folks uh, move forward with their with their careers and flying. And you know, you're you're in a really cool spot up there in Alaska, and there's. There's an airline up there, uh, Alaska Airlines, which a friend of mine just got hired with. And I, I assume that there's quite a few folks at your airline or just in Alaska in general that would aspire to to move on to something like that. Is that something you aspire to do or and do most of the folks you work with aspire to that, getting on with Alaska? I think what I'd like to get into is boxes like FedEx or UPS or one of the big cargo carriers worldwide rather than uh, – smaller airline um something like yeah. that i think that's where i'm geared towards or or maybe even just move around the world and, and fly twin otters on in the maldives or something like that i don't <laughs> i'm not sure yet i think I'm a, i'll probably be with this company for several more years and we'll see where, where it takes me from there but right well, now you know I'm if you get on with fedex you can buy your own twin otter i know that's kind of the, <laughs> kind of the goal here <laughs> kind of the end game man yeah, you got it, man. There's and and you look at uh, look at uh, Anchorage, right? Isn't there a base in Anchorage, or is that UPS? There's somebody uh, up there that has both. Both do. Oh, okay, cool. And then um, you know, looking at, I mean, flying boxes is great. A lot of people don't realize this, but uh, those guys flying boxes, those people flying boxes, man, they they're making quite a bit of money. That's why we were joking there. Some people don't realize that is is they're making more than than a lot of the passenger uh, airline pilots. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, I don't want to fly boxes around, but man, it, it's pretty cool. And, and, you know, Len and I have both been shipped via UPS or FedEx before. Sure. Just jump seating in the yeah. back. I have FedExed myself to uh, work a few times and home again. It's quite a fun experience. Did you, <laughs> did you get on the plane with the, the bunk bed? Not the bunk bed. I was on um, two MD 11s and what was the other one? I think an A. Uh, 300. Uh, it wasn't a bunk bed. It had a couple of uh, just like the first class. Um, the nice big plush first class reclining seats facing uh, crew style backwards, and all I'm looking at, you know, is a bunch of boxes in the dark. But uh, no, no, no bunk. How about the mattresses, man? They sometimes they'll let you roll out the mattresses. They're, they're behind oh, yeah. the first class. Those are awesome. A little pillow, and you just take a nap until you land. Carl, where did you go that you had time to lay on a mattress? I well, actually, this is funny. It took. I went from New York to Florida. And okay. the problem is, I you just can't get there in a straight line. 
So, of course, <laughs> they have to, have to go to some sort facility and then get off the plane and then get back on the plane and fly down. It, it actually, just New York to Florida usually takes me about six to eight hours. Wow. I could fly all the way out to almost Anchorage for that. You know, it's, it's a long flight just because of all the sorts and stuff like that. Right. But, uh, but anyway, Ponce, you know, one of the things that, that I kind of admire you for is the fact that you're doing all this stuff at once and, and you, you really don't, you don't slow down, it seems like. I mean, you're always going on one thing to the next and you keep moving forward. And you've done a lot in, in, in your life so far. And that, that's pretty cool, but there's, there's got to be some challenges. As a matter of fact, you, you mentioned you were doing UVU, uh, Utah Valley University, I think it is online. That, yeah. That's got to be pretty tough to do with your job, isn't it? I mean, how do you, how do you mix the, the studying with your work? I don't know. It's not that hard, I don't think. You, it, as long as you don't load yourself up with too many classes, too much homework, it's not that big of a deal. So just so then you can do like one course at a time, that type of thing? Yeah, I, I just did one course. I think I'm going to, for this semester, do two courses and see if I, how, how much that screws me up. But, you know, it's funny you said I've done a lot. I look at other people and say, geez, I haven't done shit, man. i, I got to get my act together here. <laughs> well, we... You've had a lot more fun at it, that's for sure. And uh, I, no, I, think, I think you have. I think you've done a lot. I mean, it's it's pretty cool. I mean, don't sell yourself short there, boy. It, uh, you know, some of the things that I, I tell you, a lot of us think, "Gosh, I wish I could do that," and and you just kind of done it, you know. And that that's pretty cool. Um, as a matter of fact, speaking of that, uh, you know, there's we have a lot of folks that are younger that listen to this too, and they're thinking about careers in aviation. I mean, you've you've done fairly well for yourself here in this aviation career so far. And have had some fun along the way. I mean, would you would you recommend it to somebody, or if you would recommend it, you know, what would you tell young folks getting into it? You know, if they're aspiring to be a pilot someday. I absolutely do recommend it. I think it's it, if you've got the what it takes to to become a, a pilot. I think it's one of the best things out there. Um, and Victoria, earlier you were saying something about getting the younger generation into. Uh, into flying. I wanted to say, I want to make a comment earlier about that. When I was flight instructing the school that I went to, they used to invite the elementary schools and they would, they would have a class come for one day and they would donate three or four hours of flight time and they would pile the kids in. We'd take them up, fly out over the beach 500 feet and bring them back. And the kids just, they, they were ecstatic. And so Hopefully, by doing things like that, got the kids thinking that, hey, this is something that we can do. It's not that just is for awesome. military I'd folks. I'd love or, to see more places do things like that for younger generation. Because I, I think a lot don't think they can become pilots, especially since women only make up 6% of the entire pilot population. How many women pilots are out there in Alaska anyway? Well, we've got... Probably five or six working for Haglin and maybe about the same, if not more, working for ERA on the ERA side. That's um, pretty good. But throughout the state, there's a lot of female pilots, and they're good pilots. You have to be I mean, to survive in Alaska. Yeah, you yeah. do. <clears throat> I mean, the girls, they're, up, they're tough up here. You know, that kind of leads into another one of my questions there, Ponce, as far as <laughs> flying in Alaska. You know, I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, oh, you don't want to get my ratings and then move on and go fly in Alaska. I hear that so many times. <laughs> and uh, as far as the adventure, yeah, I, I can't I can't speak towards it because I've never flown up there. But, you know, what 
I mean, all these people that have dreams of flying in Alaska and flying for a company in Alaska. I mean, what would you tell them? I and mean, what kind of advice? You know, you don't just drop in. Well, actually, you did that, it seems like, and, and just start flying there. Yeah, actually, that's that's it. You have to show up. 90% of it is just showing up. And that's that's how I got in. Um, I, I made calls for a year, for a year solid, trying to get a job up here. And I had low time. And and I just got hung up on and laughed at. But I bought a one-way ticket and showed up to Hagelin and forced my way into the door. And that's how I got a job. And a lot of people that I've met over those last four years working for our company and then other companies, that's how they've gotten in as well. You mm-hmm. just Some guys showed up and got a job ramping, and they're commercial pilots, you know, making 10 bucks an hour, throwing boxes on the planes, and they're just trying to get their foot in the door, and that's, that's what you have to do. Wow, that's great. I mean, you know, it's funny because I, I speak to some other folks who have given that same advice. Just show up uh, and be where you want to be, and, and you'll be able to find something you want to do. And, you know, it's funny. You know, one of the things, John, that you know, when I met you at, at Newark Airport, I, I've my opinion of you, I guess, and one of the things I think of 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 you when when I think of aviation is that you, you truly are like an ambassador for aviation, but but an ambassador for the adventure in aviation. Because I think a lot of us, when we watch Flying Wild Alaska, when, we, when we're watching you fly, we kind of are living vicariously through you and through your flying, and and you and also the other pilots there. And and that's one of the things that I think you you seem like you keep going forward with you you really are an ambassador for the adventure of flying and and that's kind of how I describe you and I'm sure other people have described you that way but I think that's that's really terrific and and I I think I hope you'll you'll continue to do that and, and inspire myself and others. Yeah, cool. Hey, I appreciate that. Um, that was my goal when we started doing the show was if I can make it look fun and adventurous then. I've accomplished something and, and I wanted to take the TSA's mojo away. I wanted to take the public view of aviation being the security breach away from the TSA and make it look fun that you can go into your hometown in the lower 48 and do it. That's so, awesome. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, noticing that. Cool. That's cool, man. Awesome. I agree with that perspective, Carl. I think that was one of the things that drew me to the show uh, personally and at the same time having already been up there myself and just experiencing you know the whole excitement of Alaska and being that you know the 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 pilot's playground i think that's the aspect that individuals get when they hear about what kind of opportunities there are what kind of awesome flying there is in Alaska and it was it was my old flight student actually when i was a CFI i had an instrument student who had gone on vacation in Alaska and absolutely loved it. And he told me my life's goal is to buy myself a Bush airplane and a little piece of property up in Alaska, move up there, have my airplane and just fly around for giggles. And that's actually what he was able to do. And that, you know, that's what granted me the experience of being able to go up there, those two opportunities and flying his super cub with him. And it's it's the it's the things you don't do in the lower 48, like landing on gravel bars or dragging the tires through the water to to do, you know, a short field bush landing and stuff like that. That's the excitement of it. This interview is a two-part series. Please join us next on episode number 40 for part two of Behind the Scenes with Flying Wild Alaska pilot John Ponce.
You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast brought to you by thepilotreport.com, a Len Costa production.